Let me take you through a part of scripture that I've always enjoyed. And it's a part of scripture, it's one of the parables that for a number of years I just couldn't, I couldn't get. I, there was just something that didn't seem right about the story. And uh, at some point I ended up teaching on it and that's when I cracked the code, and that's what I want to share with you this morning. And I love this parable, and I hope you will too. So let's, let's get ready to turn there. As I kind of introduce it, uh, it's going to be Luke chapter 16. And we're going to go through the first 13 verses. It's often called uh, the parable of the unrighteous steward. And it's uh, one piece of a chapter and a chapter that's part of a whole gospel. So the entire chapter of 16 uh, is about wealth and money, okay, and riches. And the first 13 verses are this parable of the unjust steward. And then the next four or five verses is about the Pharisees' reaction. The Pharisees loved money their protest and their reaction. And then after that is the rich man and Lazarus. Now, <clears throat> there's a lot in Luke that also deals with this topic. There's a lot in the Gospels that deal with this topic. So did you know Jesus gave about 40 different parables? that you read in the Gospels, there's about 40 of them total. One third have to do with money. Think about that. Jesus talked more about wealth and finances and money than he did heaven and hell. You need to ask yourself, and I have asked myself over the years, why is that? What's going on with that? So consider the following. It's not surprising money should dominate teaching of Jesus because it dominates in our lives. Listen to this statistic. We spend, according to statistics, more of our waking time thinking about money than not thinking about money. How to acquire it how to spend it, how to save it, how to invest it, how to borrow it, how to count it, how to sometimes give it away, how to loan it. Almost 60% of our waking time, we're thinking in some way about money. You probably don't even realize that. But that's what happens. Now, as I'm getting ready to preach this again, and I'm reviewing this this past week, I'm more conscious about how often I think about money, and I'm amazed, I'm stunned, I'm convicted, I'm like, whoa, this, this is serious. Now, part of what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to get to the heart of the matter. This is really, the whole sermon's going to really be related very much to what's going on in your heart. And Jesus knew that. 
It's not any different today than it was back then. People had this same thing going on. It's just a little bit different monetary system and a different culture, but the same thing's going on most of the time in people's thinking. If you were to be 85 years old, statistics say you would probably have spent nearly 50 years of your waking time thinking about money. So it's not an unusual topic. And Jesus used a lot of expected and unexpected things that he talked about when he was preaching and teaching and confronting and presenting himself to the Jews. And he was pretty pretty good at it. The main character in this passage is a man identified in verse 8, and he's called the unrighteous manager or the unrighteous steward. And there's no question about it. The guy's evil. He's nasty. He's conniving. He's irresponsible. And he ends up being an embezzler. Now, parable is fiction. Jesus made this story up He created it, he invented it, but there are no other components to it. There's no hidden details to uncomplicate it or complicate it. It's just as it is, and so that's what we're going to look at. As we do that, let me just pray to get us started, because we're going to need help from the Holy Spirit as we go through this, okay? Let's pray. Father, we pray... This morning, we give you thanks. You, you bless us and provide for us in so many different ways. And we pray this morning as we look at your word that your Holy Spirit is helping us. Help us to discern. Help us to understand. And then help me to share and present some of the things that I've learned and you've taught me. And that it would build us up, it would edify us, and that your spirit would convict us where it's needed. And we do it for you and for your glory. And we pray that in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. All right, here's the way verses 1 through 13 are are laid out. Uh, You're going to see that verses 1 through 8 are the parable itself. And then verses 9 through 13 is the interpretation that Jesus gives and some application. So it's going to be baked right into the sermon itself. And then verse 14 is the Pharisees' reaction. That's the layout. Let's take the first eight verses and read through them. Luke 16, verses 1 through 8. Now, he, Jesus was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master's taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do. So that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. 
And he summoned each one of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. Let's break it down. Let's, let's go down through verse by verse. And you could kind of lead it off by saying, there's no way that you can make this guy a good guy. And some people would try to do it to save from embarrassing the Lord about what's being said here. He's being praised for being shrewd. But it's not possible. This is a bad man. He's wasteful, he's deceitful, he's thieving, he's conniving. And maybe the first time you've ever read this or the first time you may have read it, you may have been a little bit shocked because you're like, well, wait a minute. Why isn't he being punished? Perhaps he should have been beaten publicly for what he was doing. We would understand that. But to commend him, it's kind of a surprise ending of the parable. But that's the whole point of the story. It's not really surprising that Jesus does this. This is, a, this is a, a frequent rabbinical pattern of teaching. It takes you from the lesser to the greater. And in the parables, this happens frequently. So in the future, when you're in a parable, you can be looking for that. There's a little phrase often used, how much more, that's used many times. If an unjust judge will do something, what will God, who is just, do? If an irritated man will open the door just to get rid of you, what will a God who loves you do when you knock on his door with a need? And here, if a wicked, evil man is shrewd in the use of money that he has access to, what would you do? It's from the lesser to the greater. And so in verse 1, we see a certain rich man had a steward working for him. And it says, this steward squandered his possessions. So it's probably like, it means something perhaps like he just helped himself to too much that belonged to his master. In our culture, it might mean padded expense accounts, lavish meals, accommodations, a limousine. I mean, he's just going overboard. This man was consuming a lot of his master's wealth but producing very little. The owner in this case probably is an absentee landowner. Now it doesn't specifically say that but the implication is he's got this guy managing the property and the owner probably lived in an estate somewhere else but he had this farming operation it's an agricultural operation, and he had appointed and hired this guy. This manager 
Most of the passages, or most of the versions say manager. Some of them say steward, okay? This guy was reported to him squandering his possessions. Now, for you as an owner, that's not good news. This is, this is not, good, not good to hear. You're not there. You're somewhere, and words come back to you that this is happening. A manager or a steward in this kind of position is, uh, is probably a free man. He's probably not a slave. He'd be high social status, high responsibility. He'd be trusted to act on behalf of his master in the full operation of this agricultural business. He manages the land, he manages the crops, the profits, the liabilities, the debts, full administrator of the estate. However, it's reported that to bring charges or to bring accusations was made. The verb here is uh, diabolo or diabolo, and it's a hostile tone to something like slander, but it's legitimate slander. The, this word comes back to the owner that this is going on behind his back. He's costing, this guy's costing this owner a lot. This word, this word for squandering, it's the same word used in the prior chapter with the prodigal son. When the prodigal son got all the money from the father, he went off to a distant land, and what did he do? He squandered it. He dispersed it in a very uh, inappropriate fashion, just throwing it away, totally irresponsible. He's, this guy, in the passage, is violating the stewardship of what belonged to somebody else. Verse 2, the owner wants an accounting for what's happening, okay? And he gives a short period of time. Now, it's not intended for the manager's benefit, this is for the master's benefit. Now, it doesn't say, but perhaps he needs some time to get the books in order to try and figure out well, what's going on. This guy, though, was motivated. And he says, I'm too old to dig ditches. I'm too proud to beg. There's got to be something I can do. The manager gives him some time to give him a report. Now, I got to tell you, that's not a good decision. That's not a wise decision by an owner. And just a little, oh, by the way, application for today, you as a business manager, don't do this. <laughs> don't do this because you can see some of what would happen if you did this, and it's no different today than it was back then. Verses three and four. The steward says to himself, so what shall I do? My master's taken the stewardship away from me. Now there's a good chance this guy probably lived on the property, okay? And you get, you get little tidbits that that might be the case in the passage because he's pretty much saying eventually he's got to find a place to live, right? And uh, so now he's losing everything. He's losing where he lives. He's losing his livelihood. And he's trying to figure out what 
am I going to do? I've been fired. He says, I'm, I'm in trouble. But he doesn't want to have a change in lifestyle. So he's going to do some things. And like a flash, in verse 4, he says, I know what I shall do. I know what I can do. Now the sense of the verb in there, in that, in that part of the passage, is it's like he suddenly had a bright idea. Aha, I think I know what I can do to preserve my lifestyle here. It hits him. And so he says, when I'm removed, maybe I can get some of these other people to receive me into their homes. There, you see where it is there in the passage? He's going to lose his home. He needs a place to stay. So he's got it, and he thinks he knows what he's going to do. And in verse 5, it talks about who these people are that he's going to try and influence to help him in this situation that he got himself into. Are you with me? Does that make sense? Okay, let's keep going. Verse 5, he summons each one of the master's debtors. And here's his idea. He's going to contact all the people who owe his master money. Now, it's important to also understand, here in this culture, it's an agrarian kind of culture. It's agriculture. So the debts are often paid at harvest time. That's what you did. If you owed somebody olive oil or wheat, you paid it at harvest time. And so the debts were outstanding, they're awaiting payment at harvest time. And he says, ah, I know what I can do with these debts. Now, in Jewish society, reciprocation, giving something back because somebody did something for you, it's a big deal. Okay? And so he's trying to create a reciprocal kind of agreement with the people who owned, owed the master money. If somebody put a banquet on for you, you put a banquet on for them later. If somebody did a huge favor for you, you give them a huge favor later. That's the way the culture and the society works. And you pick up a little bit on that in a few of the things that are said in the Gospels. Well, he's wasted his master's resources. Now he's going to embezzle money from him. He's pretty self-protective. And, you, and you're going to get an illustration now of two of the debtors. There's probably more, but these two serve as an illustration of what this guy's doing with the master's resources. Verse 6. He's going to say, check your records, contracts, and debts, and sit with him at the table. And to the first one, he says, okay, how much do you owe? And the first guy says, 100 measures of oil. All right, now different versions may have something a little bit different, but just to give you an idea of what's involved there, one measure of oil is called a bath. It's a measurement. It's 8.75 gallons. So 100 would be 875 gallons, right? That's about 1,000 denarii. That's about 
three years wages for a typical worker. That's a lot of money. And what does he tell the guy? He says, sit down and write 50. In your own handwriting, sign it. I'll sign it. We got a new deal. <laughs> In fact, it says quickly. He can't wait to get this done. Sit down quickly before anybody changes their mind. This is about taking a year and a half off the man's pay of debt. This is a pretty large amount of money, right? You with me? Same thing, number two. Verse seven, he goes to the second one. He says, how much do you owe? And the guy says, 100 measures of wheat. He said, take your bill and write 80. Well, this is about 1,000 bushels of wheat. It takes about 100 acres of property to, to grow this much wheat, okay? And he says, you take it and write 80. That's a 20% reduction. That would be like a two-year amount of salary. These are big, big amounts of money. Now, these guys probably didn't know he was terminated, but I'm sure they knew this is really not necessarily normal. So they're, they're kind of in it with him, whether they realize perhaps what's been going on or not. The steward is not just an unrighteous person. He's unfaithful as a steward. He's unfaithful as a manager for the rich man, his master. The manager did not change for the good. He only became more shrewd in doing evil. Listen to that again. When this happened and he lost his job, the manager did not change for the good. He only became more shrewd in doing evil. And then we come to verse 8. Verse 8, the critical question in this verse is, why would a man who's just been ripped off, why would he commend a crooked employee? This verse is like key to the parable as a whole. He called, he's called the unrighteous manager here. And the, ma and the manager, the master says, you're, you're a pretty shrewd guy. What is going on? Now, I got to tell you, for years I would read through this passage and I'd come out the back end and I'm going... Why is the Lord commending this guy? Aha, uh -huh. but that's the key. That's a bad interpretation. That's an incorrect way that the verse is talking. Who's the master in this verse? Who's the Lord? It's his rich man owner, not Jesus. You get that? Jesus is not commending this guy. The owner of the land, the rich man, is commending this guy. And he says, you're shrewd. And he commends him for his irresponsibility, not his irresponsibility, but his shrewdness. Now, in some cases, the word shrewd, the, 
the actual word underneath that could be translated wise, but it's one of those words that can have two, two different meanings, like tempt and test. You've heard this before? Same root word, but it could have two different translations depending on the context, and that's the case here. Okay? Shrewd here has this negative context to it. And this guy has been shrewd. He acted advantageously, took advantage of his opportunity. He worked the situation. He manipulated the resources that were in his power. And then this is what Jesus says. He makes one simple point. The sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. Here's a little paraphrase. Sinners are more shrewd than saints. You can write that down. Sinners are more shrewd than saints. That's the point Jesus is making. Sons of this age, people in this world, not in the kingdom of God, people in the kingdom of darkness, are more shrewd. And they're more shrewd to their own kind rather than the sons of light. Sons of light is a phrase that's used with regards to believers. All right? Sons of this age are with regards to those who are not in the kingdom. They're not believers. And we can see that in John, in Ephesians, in 1 Thessalonians. They all use that phrase, sons of light, and it always references believers. So sinners are more shrewd than saints. Our Lord's words here indicate several important realities. Three things. One, both the unrighteous steward and his master appreciated the same thing, shrewdness. You don't commend a man for something you disdain. Two, both the unrighteous steward and his master were members of the group which our Lord characterized as sons of this age. A contemporary phrase would be, takes one to know one, right? And three, neither the master nor his steward were members of the group identified as the sons of light. So I take it that means neither of them knew God, neither of them were believers. So, story's over. That's the parable. You got a grasp of it? You got it? Okay. That's the parable, and Jesus ends the parable with some very specific things. Now, let's look at, well, what does Jesus say about this? Because he's going to interpret it for us. And one of the nice things about many, not all parables, Jesus sometimes will interpret the parable. And we need to make sure we pay attention to his interpretation and not our own, right? Okay, let's see what he says. <clears throat> Verses 9 through 13. And, and there's going to be three things I want you to, I'll, I'll draw them out, but look for three things. 
it's going to be three lessons Jesus gives. One relates to others, one relates to ourselves, and one relates to God. Three lessons in the next five verses. Jesus says, and I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. He who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now, I'll add in here verse 14. Now, the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. Question here. Why does Jesus spend so much time telling us about the steward if we're not supposed to be like him in this regard? And it has a lot to do with how Jesus often uses contrast in order to make a point. And that's what's going on here. It's a contrast. He's contrasting with the world He's not making a comparison to it. Jesus teaches by contrast, and it's, it's in which the disciple is clearly urged to be like the steward only in the matter of making friends, but nothing else. He's really telling us what we're not supposed to be like. That's the majority of what the parable's about, contrast. The steward, second, is... He was shrewd in a typical way of unbelievers. If Christians are supposed to put off worldliness, worldly ways of thinking and acting, then we got to be clear on what worldliness looks like. This story gives us a good picture of one of the dimensions of worldly thinking, and in this case, worldly thinking about wealth and possessions and money. And third, Jesus exposes the hypocrisy and the wickedness of the Pharisees. Let's break it down. Verse 9 deals with others. Jesus says, and I say to you, and he's really saying, now let's apply this. And he's saying, take your money and do this. Make friends. Make a lot of friends. But use your money to buy heavenly friends. Heavenly friends. Literally, make friends who are going to welcome you into the eternal home. They're going to be standing on the edge of glory when you arrive to embrace you because of your investment in the gospel ministry. Make, make friends for yourselves by means of the mammon of unrighteousness. It's an old Aramaic word, and it was somewhat broad in general. It dealt with... <clears throat> Uh, money, possessions, wealth. And it's called unrighteous because it just belongs to the world. Okay? It's just a worldly thing. 
Because he says now in verse 9 that when it fails, when your time to deal with money is over, it's going to fail. It's only for here. It's only within this fallen and broken system. In Luke 12, he pretty much says, look, it doesn't matter how much you have. And in fact, when you start to build bigger barns to hold more of what you have, your soul is going to be called into account, and none of that is going to matter. So the question for us today, at this point in the parable, is what are we doing? What are we doing for the future which lasts forever? It's really kind of amazing when you think that money and possessions and unrighteous mammon can actually be used for something good. It's very interesting as a principle. Or it could be used for something not good. In and of itself, it's somewhat neutral, if you will. But we have a choice. In a way, it's a gracious gift by God that transcends this world. We can use our money to make friends who will receive us into heavenly dwellings. Matthew chapter 6, you may have been through this already with John David. It says in verse 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth. So how clear is that? It's pretty clear, right? And it goes on to say, where moth and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal. Lots of ways we can lose our money. It's temporary. It's only for here. Rather, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust destroy, but thieves do, where neither moth and rust destroy, and thieves do not break in or steal. Four, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Or you could reverse that. You could say, where your heart is, that's where you put your money. Are you with me? Now, I got to tell you, as in the past I have grown with this passage in the past week, I'm again really convicted by this passage a lot. Why? Because 60% of the time I'm thinking about money. So how am I thinking about it? That's the challenge for us. Make friends for yourselves by the use of material possessions. Christians should act similarly. Not the same way this guy did, but in a better way. We're stewards. We don't own anything. We're given resources from God for a time. There's no other better application than this for this part of the passage. It's called evangelism and missions. That's how you make heavenly friends, right? Use your money in ways that manifest Christ to men and which draw men to Christ in faith. We make friends, we invest in men's souls, they will wait for us in heaven. Verses 10, 11, and 12 have to do with ourselves. 
Again, he didn't advocate shrewdness. In fact, Jesus never uses that word in his interpretation of the passage. There is one word that's used, and it's key, key to the whole thing. It's called faithfulness. Jesus indicates here money in and of itself is not a very important thing. He, says, he actually says something like it's a very little thing, right? It's not an important thing. But he's saying something very important. It serves as a proving gown. It tests our ability to handle more important things. All the things that Jesus was teaching are intended to encourage his disciples to be faithful stewards rather than shrewd, unjust stewards. Verse 10, there's an interesting thought here. It's about money and our attitude towards self. And it's kind of self-evident. You don't have to prove it. The truth is, circumstances don't determine faithfulness. Character does. Now, you, you might, and I've, I've done this, and, and it's another convicting little phrase, you might say, well, if I had more, I'd give more. And the answer is, no, you wouldn't. No. No. <laughs> Don't fool yourself. That's, that's not the way it works. There are a lot of people who don't have hardly anything and they give a lot. And there's a lot of people who have a lot of things and they give nothing. It's all about what's in your heart. It's a view of heaven and a view of earth. It's a perspective that has captured your heart. That's what's going to do it. And it's not a mandate. It's a heart thing. If you really go read the principles about giving and money in the New Testament... 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is like the ultimate passage. There's like 15 principles for giving in there. And there's a number of them that are really good. Don't give what you don't have. Give according to what you do have. Give with joy. Give because you've purposed to give. It's not a tax. The other principle that's key that, I, that it took me a while to get, but in the, my early believer years, I got acquainted with a couple of good Christian guys on money. And uh, one of the things that really I had to work through was what's really said here in the passage. It's not yours. None of it's yours. In the early years, I would get things like, well, you know, you got to tithe 10%. You give 10%, 90% is yours. No. Put a period there. No. That's not correct. It's not true. It's all, it all belongs to the Lord. You've got Haggai, he says, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Psalms says, the earth is full of your possessions. He owns everything, all the cattle's on the hills, everything. Psalm 67, let me remind you of what we read this morning. 
Psalm 67 says, verses 1 and 2, God, be gracious to us and bless us. Cause his face to shine upon us. Key verse 2. So that your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all the nations. God blesses us so that we go out and proclaim his name. It's been that way since the beginning. At the end, he repeats it. Verse 6, the earth has yielded its produce and our God blesses us. Verse 7, God blesses us so that all the ends of the earth may fear him. It's all his. He blesses us so that we can go out and or we can help others go out and profess his name, all the nations. Just by the way, there's a, a verse right in the center of this psalm. This is a, a, a very interesting psalm, the way it's construction, and in the center is the key. And it says, let the nations be glad. John Piper wrote a book on it. The whole book is about missions. Let the nations be glad. And I got to tell you, if you want to read something, it's probably the best book on missions that I've ever read. But the point is, and it's a struggle, you're going to have to go through, I think, like I did, if you haven't already, and that is, it all belongs to him. None of it belongs to us. We, so if we get into this tithe thing, it's an Old Testament, Old Covenant principle. In fact, there were three tithes. So if you want to tithe, you got to give... 27 or 23 percent and then you have free will giving and votive giving on top of that you probably in the old testament give about 40 percent now it's a whole different economy it's a whole different theocracy issue that's going on the new testament changes all of that now we have more freedom and less mandate the old testament you obey so that you will be blessed the New Testament, you are blessed, so obey. Got it? Yeah. We're blessed. I, it's so good to be on this side of the cross, I got to tell you. Verse 13, no servant can serve two masters. Either he's going to hate the one and love the other or hold to the one and despise the other. Now, this is predicated on the verb here in the verse, and it's the verb for dulao, which means bond slavery. It's called servant, but the verb has to do with being a bond servant. And I'm gonna read quickly here, before we close, a little bit about being a slave. This really socked me this week, it just really got me. He says, it's a whole consuming life. We're not talking about occasional act of obedience. We're not talking about a part-time job. We're talking about a purchased slave, the property of a master who has singular and absolute control over what that slave does and has. The slave was a sort of tool in the master's use. He had no time that it was on, on his, of his own. He had no possession. 
He had no movement in life that was not subject to his master. I mean, we could have a job here and there and do things here and there, but not so with this. It's a single responsibility. Full-time service was the essence of slavery, being a bond slave to the Lord. And it's obvious then when you read this passage, you can't serve God as a master and have mammon as a master. It's a full-time thing. Can't be done. You either hold to the one or you're devoted to the other. Devoted means you give oneself entirely to a person. You have to decide. Now, you're probably not going to go, depending on where you're at, you may not like the sermon <laughs> because it's, it's not necessarily easy. And it's not like you're going to go home and, oh, hey, I want to go do devotions in Luke 16 here. Uh, but you gotta, you got to start saying to yourself, wow, what am I doing? What, what's going on with me and my heart with regards to this passage of Scripture? What's going on? And I can't say that I got it licked. I mean, it's like an everyday thing. you got to re-decide all the time. How am I going to think about this? It's not easy, but it's part of the sanctification process. I'm hoping the passage will edify you and encourage you. It isn't designed to condemn you. It's designed to say, think about it. What's going on in the heart? Nothing's ever been said about a specific number, specific amount. It just has to do with what's going on in the heart. Let me, let me bring it to where we can wrap this up. Consider again the following points. These are like the key, some of the key takeaways that we should have with the passage. Jesus, one, never commended nor advocated shrewdness to his disciples. The word shrewd or shrewdly is found twice in the parable, but not in the Lord's interpretation. Never does our Lord imply or state Christians should be shrewd in any way that approximate the shrewdness of the unrighteous steward or the world. Two, the concept that is most frequently found in our Lord's interpretation and application is faithfulness. Faithfulness and shrewdness are in this context, this text, diametrically opposed. The steward had to be shrewd because he had been unfaithful. Disciples that are faithful don't need to be shrewd. Three, shrewdness characterizes Satan and the unbelieving world, but it should not characterize the Christian. The steward and his master are both identified by Jesus as unbelievers. The Bible never teaches us to act like the world teaches us to act the exact opposite. For, as in all other areas of Christian living, God's blessing in the area of finances is not based upon man's skill or shrewdness, but on his faithfulness to his promises. 
If the responsibility of man is to be found here, it's found in the area of faithfulness, which our Lord commended. And he characterized shrewdness as typical of unbelievers. So, do you work as hard on your material wealth and possessions and money as you do for temporal things versus things having to do with making eternal friends? That's the question. Do you have an eternal perspective? The text this morning provides us with a good motivation for good stewardship. It's designed to motivate godly living. And it has to do with our being faithful stewards, faithful managers, in terms of the material possessions that God has given us. Other passages indicate we got to leave it all behind. Time is short, and we're going to give an account. That's something we should be thinking about. Time is short. In fact, if anything, based on all the things that are going on around the world and in America today, it seems like time is getting shorter and shorter. So, in the week ahead, be thinking about this. My job is not to convict you. That's the Holy Spirit's job, right? My job is just to convey to you what the Lord has said. And the Holy Spirit, I pray, he will take it and press it on your hearts this week and the weeks ahead. And you will begin to see, A, well, where is my heart? And if it's not in the right place, where does it need to go? So it gets in the right place. And one area, and it's a big area, has to do with possessions and money and wealth. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you. Your word is so, so good. <laughs> and you've blessed us with everything we need to live it. And you've written it so we can proclaim it. And you've given us a new heart which can be, can be filled again with your word so that we can live it. So we pray for that this morning for myself, for all of us here, for your local church around the world. And we lift it up in the name of our Savior Jesus because we know, we know that's part of your purpose and plan. Amen.